May we turn in our Bibles, please, to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 15, verse 9. Beware that there be not a thought in thy wicked heart, say. Beware that there be not a thought in thy wicked heart, saying. I have pointed out in some of my earlier messages that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord. We had uh, another message from Moses in Deuteronomy in which Moses was having trouble with the hearts of the people. And I sought to show you that it was with the heart that the Lord deals. And if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the mouth confession is made unto righteousness, but with the heart belief is made unto salvation. And we have a text here in which Moses addresses the people and he's saying, Say not in thy wicked heart. He uh, <clears throat> recognized the condition of the heart of man and also the condition of the heart of those who have also been redeemed. And one of the tragedies of our day is that both the world at large and the church in general does not understand the present estate of man. That's one of our great disasters. And the world in general, and the church in particular, is trying to help man without really understanding the condition in which man actually abides. And all of this help, therefore, is misdirected. All of this help, therefore, is superficial. And it doesn't get down to the inner being and the heart of man. Thy wicked heart. In our day, man is particularly proud of himself. You just can't pick up any sort of a journal or paper today without seeing this constant adulation of man, his attainments, his scientific knowledge, he's reaching for the moon, Man has become a great creature, at least in the opinion of man. And we are uh, finding ourselves in a day when the pride and the spirit and the attainments and the dreams of man are simply taking man away from uh, an honest appraisal of what he is and what he actually needs to help him in his present estate. This heart that man has is a very, very dangerous thing. 
Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart of man is deceitful. The heart of man is a very deceitful thing, but he says it's deceitful even above all things. There's nothing anywhere that can possibly compare to the designs and the deceits that are in the heart of man. And then Jeremiah says, it's desperately wicked. And who can know it? And one thing I can tell you people this morning, as the pastor of this church, don't trust your heart. You don't know it. You can trust the word of God. And your heart can be strengthened and guided by the commandments of God. But don't trust your heart. It will betray because it's deceitful. And we come face to face with all this that the apostle is telling us in the New Testament that no flesh should glory in his presence. There's not anything in man that can commend man to God. No flesh is going to be able to stand up and glory in the presence of God. And the sooner we see it, the sooner we recognize it, the sooner we find our position and our place as man, the better off we're going to be in finding our relationship to God and sustaining the kind of a work that he would have us do down here on this earth. Vanity, vanity. All is vanity, saith the preacher. Here they are working, slaving, learning, advancing everything that they're wrapped up in. And he says, it's vanity, 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 saith the preacher. All is vanity. Let's get back to man and see what's happened to him. Let's see what's brought upon him, his misery and his death. And let's look at this calamity that has beset man. And when we see what this is, then we'll see what the real remedy for the condition of man is. And then we can put man up and establish him on some kind of a rock and get his feet where they can be firm and man can proceed to make a little progress. But you're not going to do it until you get down to the place where you find out what's in the heart of man and what the nature of man is. One of the things that interests me today, and you hear it all the time, they're so afraid that we're going to blow the world up. Everybody's afraid, these intellectuals, somehow or other we're just going to blow this thing up. And if it should all be blown up and everybody was destroyed, wouldn't that be a disaster? We hear it on every hand. But did anybody ever stop to tell these gentlemen that there was a time in the history of the world when God destroyed everybody on here except a man and his, and his sons and their daughters. When they got through with that atomic destruction, there was only eight of them left. But it wasn't atomic, it was a flood. But what was the judgment that fell upon this earth in that day when every living creature and every living person on the face of this earth died and only Noah and his sons and their wives were preserved in an ark that God had designed for them. And they rode above the judgment in the clear. And they were delivered from that judgment. Will you turn with me back please to these passages in the early chapters of Genesis. Turn please to Genesis the 6th chapter. Genesis the 8th chapter. 
And you'll see what the problem was. And furthermore, you'll see that it's the same kind of a problem that's beginning to confront us today. And in verse 5 we read, And God saw the wickedness of man. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God says, here's this man that I've created, and we read here, it repented the Lord that he'd made man, and it grieved him in his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping things and the fowls of the air, for it repented me that I've made man. But Noah found grace. Noah found grace. And the only reason why that Noah wasn't destroyed, Noah had no righteousness, Noah had no favor, Noah had nothing whereby he could come in glory in the presence. God had mercy and he gave this man, Noah, some grace. And it made the difference between a man who was saved and who became a great preacher of righteousness and the rest of humanity that was destroyed for their sin. Now, if you look down just a little further, the 13th verse, And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And then we have the account of the building of the ark and the coming of the flood, and then in verse 21 of chapter 7, And all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both fowl and of cattle and of beast and of every creeping thing that creepeth on the earth, and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life, of all that was in the dry land, died. And how did all this begin? How did all this start? Well, if you'll turn over to the sixth chapter, we begin to read, and it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and they took them wise of all that they chose. And you have here the intermingling, you have here the crossing between the sons of God and the daughters of men, those who had faith and who had the knowledge of the truth and those who were in darkness and were the unregenerate and you cross those two strains and when you cross them you got the multiplication of evil and the increase of violence and it became so wicked out of the hearts of men that God says I will destroy man from the face of this earth. And these gentlemen today who tell us that it's going to be a great calamity if something like this should happen, of course I know it's not going to happen. Because the Bible tells me very plainly that the Lord is going to come and all the atomic blasts in the world aren't going to interfere with the rapture. All the destruction that may come aren't going to interfere with the resurrection of the dead. Can't possibly stop that event. So I have no fear of these dire predictions that the race is going to be utterly destroyed if we don't capitulate and appease the Russians. 
I have no fears of that kind because I am one who believes the Bible and understand how the Lord has outlined that these things shall take place. But what I am concerned about right now is that every one of us recognize the present state of man in sin and the wickedness of that heart which man possesses by virtue of his being born in this succession of generations as the descendants and the children of Adam. Do you know what we call this in Presbyterian parlance? Do you know what we call this in our Presbyterian circles of doctrine? Do you know what we call this in the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith? Do you know what we call this when we read it in the Bible? You know what it is? The depravity of man. Man is depraved. Paul puts it a little stronger when he says man is dead. You are dead in trespasses and sins. To be depraved is to be in a condition in which you are totally and completely cut off from any communion and any fellowship with the living God. Beloved, I want to tell you that the only way an ungodly man can come into the knowledge of the living God is to hear somebody preach the gospel and the Lord give him faith and then he'll be saved and then he'll have the Bible to guide him and to direct his course. The ungodly man is without Christ. He is without God and he is without hope in this world. And we must come to the place where we can even say the plowing of the wicked is sin. That when a man is in this condition of complete alienation from God, when man is completely cut off from any communion and any fellowship with God, that man is under the condemnation and the curse and the wrath of God. And you can talk about all humanity being destroyed in the flood and it was a great judgment. But, beloved, the judgment which has fallen upon the human race is the wages of sin is death. It is this dark, bleak disaster which we call death which fell upon us when our first parents went into sin and they ate of that forbidden fruit and brought down upon them this penalty of death and we are partakers of their sin and we're partakers of their death and as we fell in Adam and as we're united in the race with the sin of Adam so we can be saved in Christ and we can be united in Christ to our deliverance and our salvation and a glorious resurrection day which is just before us. Our own creed, our Westminster Confession, which the other Presbyterians are now laying aside, has in some of these great statements, and I'd like to just read you this beautiful statement on the fall of man and the punishment for his sin. You young people think you can understand this? Now listen, see if you can. Our first parents, being seduced by the subtlety and temptation of Satan, sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. This their sin God was pleased, according to his wise and holy counsel, to permit having purposed to order it to his own glory. By 
their sin, they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God and became so dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. That condemnation, that sin entered into all the faculties and the parts of our soul and our body. And if you don't believe it, just take a little one-year-old or a two-year-old or a three-year-old boy and turn him loose. It's there. We are born in sin. And in sin did my mother conceive me. And the curse and the condemnation of this has permeated every relationship that we sustain and brings us down to the door of death. They being the root of all mankind, the guilt of sin was imputed and the same death in sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation. You can't stop it. You can't stop it. It's not possible for any of us to have children or grandchildren that will interfere with this order as it progresses. You can't stop it. From this original corruption whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to all evil do precede all actual transgressions. Beloved, let's face the fact that man has been separated from God. Man has been ruined by sin. Man is here in a dark place and he just grovels around in it, struggling here and there. And unless God comes in, unless God comes down, unless the lights are turned on, and those lights can only be turned on by the Lord God of heaven and earth, man continues in his darkened estate. This corruption of nature during his life doth remain in those that are regenerated. We talk about the unregenerate as I've been speaking up to this moment. But after you are born again, after the new life has come, after the seed has been planted, and the Lord is watering that seed by his spirit, and you become a new man in Christ, still that corrupt nature remains in those that are regenerated. And although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, Yet both itself and all the motions thereof are truly and properly sin. After we're saved, after we're justified, and we're new men in Christ, we still have the remnants of that old nature inside of us. And it's out of that old nature inside of us that flow our sins and our present sins. And that's why Moses could say to the children of Israel, don't you think up any thoughts out of your wicked heart. 
And when I stand here in this pulpit this morning and speak to you people who have been saved and you've been born again and you've been members of this church through the years and you sat under the ministry of the Word of God, I know exactly how every last one of you operate. I know it. And that's not all. You know how I operate. Because I'm just like you. We have these things in our flesh. And the struggle of the Christian in the Christian life is to die unto sin. Die unto sin. Mortify the deeds of the flesh. Trample them down underfoot. Keep them where they belong. And let the Lord Jesus Christ increase and let his image be formed in us that we shall be by the grace of God a mighty trophy of his mercy. That's what we're to be. Well, if man is this bad off and if there isn't any hope for him, it seems to me that we ought to direct our first attention to trying to help man in the one way in which he can be delivered. And you know what that is? Just the preaching of the gospel. Will you turn with me, please, to 1 Corinthians? Everybody open your Bibles now. The 1 Corinthians, the first chapter. And let's go down about verse 17. I want you to follow this. Because here's a long line of thought that the apostle is developing here in this connection. For Christ sent me not to baptize. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't have to baptize. You do. But that's not the main emphasis. And that's why when you come to this church, you don't hear about baptism every Sunday. You come to this church, you hear the whole counsel of God, and we put baptism in its proper relationship to the whole system of truth. But to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Now, beloved, let me just divide that up for you briefly. I came to preach the gospel. That's already been determined. That's not mine. It's already been set out here. It's already been defined. It's already been delivered. And all we have to do is to take it as we find it and get up and proclaim it as God has given it to us. Now, that doesn't mean that you must have a preacher who doesn't use good English. By all means, get one that uses good English. That doesn't mean that you must have a preacher that isn't intelligent enough to look around the world and find out what's going on and in a position to make some intelligent applications. Of course, it means not, not that at all. But it does mean that we don't bring in the wisdom of the world or the words of men's wisdom and try to dress it up and try to uh, use it to entice some of these men of the world to come our way. No words that any man ever uttered can entice the ungodly to come to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And it's only the preaching of the gospel and the preaching of the word. And I warn you, dear saints in this house, I warn you, dear people who are listening to Dr. McIntyre, who spent his years preaching to you, don't you ever bring anybody into this pulpit. And don't you ever have a man occupy 
the ministry of this place who comes with enticing words of man's wisdom. Tell him to go down to the forum and preach if you want him to preach. But when he comes into this place, let him take the Bible. Let him take the scripture. And in the anointing and the power of the Spirit with the ability and the grace that God gives, let him exhort and remonstrate and let him tell you the message of life as we find it in Holy Scriptures. Look at that next verse. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Well, if it's foolishness to them, shall we change it? If it's foolishness to them, shall we adjust it so we can take the foolishness out? That's the trouble with the new confession. That's the trouble with all these young people today who are thinking, well, now, it's foolishness, and I'm going to get around that. I've got a nice scheme. We'll fix this up. We'll get around that. We'll get around that. We'll get to these folks in our way. Oh, the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Well, if it's such great foolishness, let's slip up on them. Let's go at them in some indirect way. Let's be careful how we approach them. Let's, let's be awfully cautious, you know. Notice what Paul says. Oh, how beautifully he opens it. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. And beloved, if that power is ever going to strike, if that power is ever going to manifest itself, it's not going to manifest itself with the enticing words of some man's wisdom. It will only manifest itself by the preaching of the cross. And what you know and what I know is that here's the man who says it's foolishness. But when we stand and we preach and we preach the judgments and we preach sin and we preach death and we preach the condemnation and we preach the wrath of God, then you come in with this message of life and while you're preaching it, while you're in the ministry of this gospel, there is another person. That person is the Holy Spirit. And he moves in the church. He moves with the preaching of the gospel. And when you exalt Christ, and when you preach the cross, and when you hold up this message of redemption, and it's foolishness to the wise men. But the Spirit of God takes it, and he adds the power to it. He adds the power to it. And it's the power which he adds that does the work. Not the preacher. Not the words of man. But it's the power of God. Yesterday while I was working on my reply to this Methodist Sunday school lesson for February 12th. In fact, I'm going to teach it on that day. I turned back and got a hold of one of John Wesley's old sermons. And oh, beloved, if John Wesley could be turned loose in the Methodist church today, they'd have a riot if they just turned him loose. He's got a sermon on corrupting the Word of God. He's got three points in it on how you corrupt the Word of God. And the first way you corrupt the Word of God is to intermingle it with the ideas of man. That's what Wesley said. No, beloved, the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us who are saved, it is the power of God. Now take verse 19, 20. Young people, look at this. I want you boys and girls to follow the pastor as he opens this passage here in Corinthians. It's so beautifully outlined. For it is written, 
Where is it written in the Bible? Where is it written in the book of Moses? I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Oh, God says, here are the wise men all over the universe, all over the world, anywhere you go. He says, I'll destroy their wisdom and I'll bring to naught anything and everything they've ever produced because, you know, beloved, it's been produced out of a sinful mind. It's been produced out of the grovelings of men that they've tried to figure out a few little things down here in their darkness. And all God needs to do to destroy it is just turn on a little light. Turn on a little more light. Give them a little bit more light. And it just destroys it and destroys it. And we have no trouble in seeing that. We have no trouble in seeing it today with the wise men. You go to the universities today. As, as a matter of fact, there's very few universities that are agreed anymore on what's what. It's the most amazing thing that we're getting into. And uh, what they knew ten years ago, well, that's all been destroyed. We've got new theories and new advances. And if there ever was a day when the wisdom of the world is being destroyed, it's being destroyed by the thinkers themselves as they progress with their learnings. God says, I'm going to destroy it. And then he says, wait a minute, let me ask you something. Where are the wise? Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Well, if you wait long enough, they'll be dead. You just wait long enough, they'll be gone. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Oh, beloved, here was the world in its wisdom, and Adam and Eve had it all. And the infinite knowledge which they possessed in their innocency and in their holiness. And then it was lost, it was ruined, and they were shut out of the garden, and they lost all this information and all this knowledge. It was taken from them in judgment. And then the world now by its wisdom knows not God. God says, all right, I'll just do the foolishness of preaching. I'll raise up preachers. And beloved, I stand in this pulpit today and I say with all my heart, the greatest thing on this dear earth of ours today are the preachers of this blessed message. Let us have preachers. Let us have men with tongues of fire. Let us have men who take this message and dedicate their lives, their talents, their years, everything to the preaching of this message of everlasting life. For the Jews, verse 22, require a sign. And the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews, a stumbling block. Well, because it's a stumbling block to the Jews, do we remove the offense of the cross? No, we keep on preaching it. Because it's a stumbling block to the Jews, do we modify the message so the Jews won't stumble at it and they can come in on the basis of the brotherhood of man and the fatherhood of God. And then we have nice working relationship with each other. 
No, beloved, it has been and it always will be the offense of the cross. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. And the Greeks, they seek after wisdom. They say, you're not going to ask me to believe that this message that you're proclaiming, that somehow or other, if I believe I'm a sinner, and if I believe this man Jesus died for me, that all of a sudden I'll be made a new creature. And my mind won't swallow that. But notice the next verse. But unto them which are the called, both Jews and Greek, Christ the power of God, Christ the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. God's decided that by the foolishness of preaching, that's wiser than all the plans and programs of men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Ye see your calling, brother, how that not many wise men after the flesh. You don't have many of the kings and the mighty. Not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen. And I'll let me show you what he's chosen. Four things. Here they are. This is what God has chosen. God has said, I'll... I'll lay my hand on this. I'll come down and I'll give this to men. And in the power which I have in the spirit, I will give unto them life and I will give unto them a new nature. What are they? Four things. He's chosen the foolish things. He's chosen the weak things. He's chosen the base things. He's chosen the things which are not to bring to naught the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. Why he's chosen what the world says is foolish. He's chosen what the world says is weak. He's chosen what the world says is base. He's chosen what the world says is just nothing, just nothing, in order that he should bring to naught all of the things that men have boasted in, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Oh, beloved, this gospel is the greatest leveling force that ever was. Kings and potentates are no better than the offscouring of the earth. And the mighty men of this earth are no better in God's sight than the Hottentots of Africa. They're no better in the sight of God than the outcast of India with whom we have the most delightful fellowship and for whom some of our Christmas offering was raised. Oh, beloved, no flesh should glory in his presence. No man can say, I have degrees, I have attainments, I have position, I have heredity, I have all this wealth. I have all these things to present, Lord. Here I come. I'm marching in. Take me now. God says no flesh will glory in his presence. None whatever. None whatever will glory in his presence. I was interested this week in getting the little magazine that they send to the ministers in the Presbyterian Church. I get one. I, I don't know that we subscribe to it or whether they still think I'm a minister in their church, but I get one of them. And I always like to read what they're telling the preachers. And uh, in this one that just came out, there's this fellow in here that's talking about the new confession. He says, the old confession no longer reflects 
the current understanding of our church. Teachers and taught with regard to what system of doctrine is taught in the Holy Scriptures, or if indeed there is a system taught at all, we do indeed continue to believe most firmly that the Bible communicates God's word to man, but we are hearing him differently and understanding the book differently. And this must make a difference in our confession and the ordinances which grow out of it. Well, it's made a difference. And let me read you. They have an official communication, which I presume is to be read to their churches, signed by the moderator and the secretary of the general council and the stated clerk, William P. Thompson, and Gance Little is the moderator, and Theophilus M. Taylor, and here's a three-page letter that they have sent for the new year, letter from the general council to the people of the United Presbyterian Church in the United States of America. And let me read you people what they have. Quote, within the United States, the defeat of the 1966 Civil Rights Bill unmasked the nation's unwillingness to accept integration as policy in its neighborhoods. The primary elections of the spring found a distressing number of outright segregationist candidates victorious over men of more enlightened views. And the general election of November have borne further witness to regression. The goals need no lengthy explanation. Our need is but to follow them under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Now here they are. One, in the realm of public action. It is important that we work for, one, desegregation of the neighborhoods where we live. Two, rebuilding our cities to replace slums with decent low-rent housing. Three, creation of far-sighted policies and programs to end crime and human degradation spawned in racial ghettos throughout the land. Four, construction of decent homes and hospitals for all. Five, improvement of, palace, of police, community relations, and law enforcement. Six, upgrading and integrating of public education. Seven, non-discrimination in job opportunities and the creation of job training programs. That's a nice program, ladies and gentlemen. Now let me read you the next one. Two, in the church's institutional life this means calling ministers from Negro and other minority groups to pastorates or staffs in predominantly white congregations, moving beyond negativism or tokenism to integration of existing congregations and establishing new congregations and inter integrated communities. Increasing our emphasis upon evangelism among racial minorities and taking the initiative in desegregating the neighborhoods in which our churches are located, joining forces with Negro denominations, especially in metropolitan strategy and mission, ensuring equal opportunity through our employment and investment policies. Mindful of the judgment of God upon unfaithful servants, our congregations, sessions, presbyteries, and synods must act forthrightly in implementing all the General Assembly's policies and race relations and must vigilantly encourage, support, and defend members and pastors who participate in the struggle for human rights and brotherhood. That's their program of action from the General Assembly's Council, their New Year's letter, beloved. 
Oh, beloved, let's come back again to the idea that the only way you're going to remedy crime, the only way you're going to straighten these situations out is to change the wicked heart that is in man. And the one ministry, the one institution, the one work on this earth that should be dedicated to changing the wicked hearts of men should be the pulpits of the church. That's where it should be. In fact, if it isn't there, we don't get it. Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? I was interested, I'll give you this as I close, this Methodist uh, Sunday school lesson which I'm going to teach on November the 12th, which raises these questions about Dr. McIntyre. And they ask the question, why do some Methodists believe in Carl McIntyre more than they do in the elected leaders of their own church, the General Council? McIntyre's view of man and of human society renders democracy hopeless. McIntyre's view of man and of human society renders democracy hopeless. That's what the Methodists have decided. No, beloved, it's because of the view of man which we find in the Bible that we're in favor of a constitution with balances and checks and all these restraints upon the greed and the pride of men. And it's because of our view of man that we want to have a society where there will be freedom for men to repent of their sins and to turn to God. We want to live in a society where men will be free to serve God and not serve this growing powerful state which captivates and commands our lives and our possessions and our time. We believe that man can be redeemed by the grace of God. And we want to live in a society where man can be free to serve the living God. But McIntyre's views of man and human society render democracy hopeless. Beloved, the kind of man that I'm talking about, condemned by God, he's the man who makes a communist. He's the man who makes a Nazi. He's the man who makes a tyrant. But the man who loves God and who knows what God's grace does for man is the man who will devote himself to freedom and to the preaching of the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now be careful about that thought in your wicked heart. That wicked heart, it's there. And let's ask God to cleanse it. Let's ask God to take away the thoughts. And then let's turn to these other great things that we should do in order to glorify God, for that is the purpose of our creation and our redemption. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank Thee for the message. And we know that what we say is cutting across the great tide as man in his pride seeks to build his own little fantasies. But, oh, Father, we thank Thee that Thou art the God of grace, mysterious and glorious grace that thou dost bring us to thyself. And truly we can say that no flesh should glory in thy presence. All of our glory in thy presence 
shall be given to Jesus Christ, thy Son. Amen.